I invite you to turn with me in God's Word to 1 Samuel. Today we're going to conclude our study of the life of Saul. If uh, you were here last year, you'll remember fondly, no doubt, that we studied the life of Samuel. That's 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 7. And this year we've been studying the life of Saul, 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 15. Uh, Next year, in the will of the Lord, April, more or less, mark it on your calendar, uh, we'll come back to 1 Samuel, and we'll pick it up in chapter 16 with the life of David. Uh, Samuel isn't dead yet. His death isn't recorded until chapter 25. Uh, Saul definitely isn't dead yet. His death isn't recorded until chapter 31. But beginning in chapter 16, verse 1, Uh, They are no longer the central figures. Uh, They're no longer the focal point of this book. Uh, It is David. And so when we come back next year, April, May, I won't make any promises, but it'll be somewhere around there, Uh, we'll come back and we'll pick it up in chapter 16 with the life of David. But we finish today with the life of Saul, and I invite you to follow along as I read in chapter 14. It's a lengthy reading. I'm going to start in chapter 14, verse 47, and I'm going to go all the way through to the end of chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, please open it to 1 Samuel 14. If you don't have a Bible, there are usually there are some under the chairs. Please avail yourself of them and follow along as I read from God's holy word. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, And against the Philistines, wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tilaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the valley of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. 
The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obey their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Are you still with me? That was a long reading. That was a mouthful. I need to take a couple breaths just to catch up. But there was a lot, there was a lot in there. Uh, what we are going to focus on is the blatantly obvious. Uh, at times, many times, most of the times, uh, we are guilty of missing the blatantly obvious. I read this in a book some months ago. Uh, the author wrote the following. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were camping in a tent. 
Holmes woke up Watson in the middle of the night and pointed up at the stars. Watson blinked the sleep out of his eyes as Holmes asked what he deduced. Watson replied, well, astronomically, I deduce there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I deduce that Saturn is in Leo. Meteorologically, I deduce that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What about you, Holmes? What do you deduce? Watson said Holmes slowly, I deduce that someone has stolen our tent. At times, we miss the blatantly obvious. Uh, More often than not, dare I say, we miss the blatantly, glaringly obvious. That's what we're going to hone in on. What Samuel declares the word of the Lord to Saul in verses 22 and 23. We have memorized verse 22 this month. And so now we're going to unpack it. And we're going to consider divine delight. Divine delight. The glaringly obvious. But before we do... There are a couple of controversies, controversies, as one of my seminary professors used to call them. There are a couple of controversies that we need to deal with. So our goal is divine delight, blatantly obvious. But to get there, as we read this passage, and perhaps they leapt out of the page and grabbed your attention, there are two controversies that we need to address and, and, and get out of the way. And I'm going to explain each and, uh, and explain briefly why we should care about each, why they are significant and why they are actually extremely important for us. The first controversy, we can sum it up as follows, the immutability of God. Doesn't that just flow off the tongue? The immutability of God. We affirm that God is immutable. What do we mean by that? We mean that God is unchangeable. Well, I want you to notice three verses. First of all, verse 11. And notice what the Lord declares at the start of the verse. I regret that I have made Saul king. Now I want you to notice verse 29. Here Samuel is speaking, and also the glory of Israel, the Lord, God. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. And now I want you to notice thirdly the last statement in verse 35. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. How do we explain those three statements? Because at a first glance, there appears to be a blatant uh, contradiction. There is an entire school of thought. Let's just put it over here. Entire school of thought is pretty well embedded in a movement known as process theology, and I will be brief. But basically, process theologians believe, and, and all those different theological systems built on it, They basically believe that God isn't transcendent. He isn't transcendent. He isn't above space and time, but he is confined to, he is under, limited to space and time, just like us. That means that God is, and this is a a, a term they use, this means that God is bipolar, not in a medical sense of the word. What they mean by that is God is like us. He lives between two poles. He's bipolar. And so there is over here a physical pole, all that happens in the past. And there is over here a potential pole, all that might happen in the future. 
And God lives between these two poles. And he looks back and he sees this physical pole, all that has happened, and his knowledge is perfect. He knows everything that has gone before him. But as he looks ahead, he's just like us. He sees a potential pole, a world of potentialities, but he does not know what is going to happen. There is no such thing as foreknowledge because God can't know what lies ahead in the future until it actually happens. And so God isn't transcendent. He is limited to space and time. And God looks in the past, perfect knowledge of everything that has ever happened, and he acts in accordance with his perfect knowledge from the past, trying to achieve, desperately trying to achieve the best results for the future. But there's no guarantee because he doesn't know what we're going to do. He doesn't know what choices and decisions we're going to make. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And so God is as much a part of this unfolding drama known as history as we are. And so you take that school of thought, you come back to 1 Samuel 15, and proponents of that view say, aha, see, here we have it. And so God, bipolar, he looked into the past. He knew everything that happened in the past, and he decided Saul would be a good choice for king. And so he anoints Saul, but he didn't know what was going to happen in the future. As he looked ahead, all he saw was a world of potentialities, and Saul proved to be a disappointment. God didn't know he was going to prove to be a disappointment. Based on the facts, what had happened before, God thought he'd be a pretty good choice as king. He anointed him as king. Saul turned out to be a disappointment, and God regretted the decision he made. You're following all that. We reject it. We reject it because that is no God. That is simply the gods of the Greek and Roman pantheon. That is simply a God cultivated in man's image. That is not a God worthy of adoration. That is not a God worthy of service. That most certainly is not a God worthy of worship. We affirm God's immutability. He does not change. And so those two statements, verse 11, verse 35, where we read that the Lord regretted, that is not a commentary on God's actions. That is God's response to Saul's actions. God does not have passions. God does not experience fits of rage and envy and misery. But God does have holy affections flowing from his goodness. And God is genuinely grieved by his creature's disobedience and sin and rebellion. And so that's what we read of in those two verses. We read of God's holy affection of grief as he surveys Saul's willful disobedience. But in terms of God's will... We have a wonderful summary statement in verse 29 from Samuel. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. That has echoes. And undoubtedly, Samuel has this text in mind. No need to turn back there. I'm going to read it. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not man. There's an important starting point. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And so when it comes to the will of God, his will is immutable because he is immutable. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Beautiful little statement in James chapter 1 where James declares that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Uh, The Father of lights, 
in whom there is no variation nor shifting shadow. What does James mean? The father of lights in whom there is no variation nor shifting shadow. He's referring to the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth. That the planets and stars and sun, all of these things are moving. They are in flux. And because they are moving, they cast shadows, night and day. But God is the father of lights, the creator of all things, in whom there is no variation and in whom there is no shifting shadow. What he was yesterday, he is today. And what he is today, he will be tomorrow. He is not a man that he should change his mind. He accomplishes all of his purposes, all of his goals. He declares, I have declared the end from the beginning. And he accomplishes his will among his creatures. Now, why should we care about that? We should care about that for the following reason. We can can only be certain of God's love for us if God is immutable. Have you ever thought that one through? The Father and Son have entered into a covenant A covenant which predates the creation of the world. And the Father and Son have covenanted to redeem a people for himself. God has entered into a covenant with himself to redeem a people foreseen as fallen for himself, for his glory. And he in love has predestined these people for adoption as sons according to the pleasure of his will. It is in love that he has predetermined this. It is on the basis of this eternal covenant of redemption between father and son that he has predetermined this. And so it is his love, on the basis of his love, his act, his choice to bestow love on the unlovable that he acts for the furtherance and the manifestation of his glory. The accomplishment of his will, what he has determined for the manifestation of his love, stands upon his faithfulness. His faithfulness stands upon what? His immutability. I am the Lord. I do not change. That is the only reason we are not consumed. That is the only reason. I am the Lord. I do not change. Our salvation is fixed in God's choice to bestow his love upon the unlovable sinners. He accomplishes his will by his faithfulness, accomplishing all that he has promised. And we have this absolute certainty that he brings to fruition and completion all that he has promised, all that he has devised, because our God does not change. So the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was out for a walk one day in the English countryside and he had a friend with him and they happened upon a farm with a barn and on top of this barn a weather main and on top of the weather main a, uh, an inscription God is love and Spurgeon looked to his friend and said I don't think that's a very good place uh, to be declaring God is love because that thing moves and shifts whichever way the wind is blowing and his friend corrected Spurgeon and says I don't think you understand the intent of what that statement is declaring That statement is declaring that regardless of which way the wind blows, God is love. Regardless of which way the wind blows, regardless of what happens, what comes our way, God is love. And the only reason, Christian, we can be certain of that is because God is immutable. 
The second controversy we want to get out of the way is this, the severity of God. And undoubtedly you notice this one. Again, I'm going to read three verses, beginning in verse 3. Back we go to 1 Samuel 15. Now go and strike Amalek. This is horrific. And devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now look at verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. One more verse, verse 18. And the Lord sent you, here Samuel is reminding Saul of his mission, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Again, my friend, I don't know how you read that and how you react to that, but that is strikingly horrific. Here we have God mandating We have God commanding Israel to annihilate a people's group. We use a word for that. Do you know what it is? It's genocide. That is what we have taking place in this chapter, genocide. The deliberate killing of a very large number of people from a particular ethnic group. That raises huge problems for me. I'm just going to speak for me. That raises huge problems I'm assuming it does for most of us here. How, how do Christians handle this? As we wrestle with it and come to grips, try to come to grips with it, how do we explain it and how do we set it in the context of the Bible as a whole and in particular the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ? I, I, what, 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 I'm not talking about outside the church. That's a completely different discussion. I'm speaking of within the, the professing church, what passes for the church in our day. And as I survey the church and as I read and as I discuss these issues with people, I discover that basically on the table there, there are three options, three options prevalent within the, within the professing church among professing Christians. The first option is this. This story, and stories like it in the Old Testament, well, this, is a, uh, this story is a myth. It's all we've got here. It's just, it's just a myth, and let's conveniently dismiss it. Uh, the Israel lived in the age of mythos. Uh, Homer and all of those other writings, the Odyssey and, and the Iliad, all that stuff. And they were very superstitious people, the Israelites. And so they interpreted and defined their history on the basis of superstition. They tried to read God into everything. But it's rather archaic. It's rather primitive. And really, God isn't active here. God has no hand in this. So we can simply dismiss it, disregard it, take a pair of scissors and cut that page right out of your Bible because this is just purely myth. Big problem with that. A huge problem with that. The New Testament builds on the Old Testament. The New Testament and the authors of the New Testament presume the historical veracity and reliability of the Old Testament. Paul, for example, in Acts chapter 13, preaches a sermon. And in that sermon, he gives the Israelites just a a quick historical survey. And he reminds them of how God destroyed the seven nations of Canaan. And so for the Apostle Paul, these events were historical. Uh, The Lord Jesus himself, he accepted and he viewed the Old Testament as historically reliable. He referred to creation. He referred to the creation of the first man and the first woman. 
He makes reference to Noah's flood. He makes reference to the burning bush. He makes reference to Jonah. The Lord Jesus, as far as he's concerned, the Old Testament is a reliable book, not just because it contains nice truths and principles and stories. No, but because it is a historical record, a reliable record. And so we have a huge problem. If we disregard and and we don't have any time for these stories in the Old Testament that are kind of distasteful, and we say, well, that's just just myth. Here is what we are left with. And I'm going to state this plainly, emphatically, unequivocally. You cannot be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and reject portions of the Old Testament. You cannot do it. It is intellectual suicide. You cannot do it. I cannot walk around professing to be a believer in the Lord Jesus, yet reject what he believed. I cannot say, well, yes, Jesus leads us into truth, all truth, and leads the way to salvation, but I reject the fact that what he accepted as historical truth and reliability, well, I I, I reject that and want nothing to do with it. There was a preacher preaching, hellfire brimstone, a couple Sundays in a row, big mistake, maybe. A man came to him at the end of the second, third service, and he'd been preaching on hell. And the man said to him, why don't you simply preach about the meek and lowly Jesus? And the preacher looked them dead in the face. That's, who I got my, that's from whom I got my information about hell. That's where I got my information about hell. Uh, there is no contradiction between Old Testament and New Testament. There is no contradiction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The problem is us, that our silly sentimentality, which has a stranglehold on large segments of the church today, We feel we have to redefine God to fit our skewed worldview. But again, I want to repeat it, that if we reject the historical reliability of the Old Testament text, we cannot claim, well, you can claim it, but it's a false claim. We cannot claim to be a believer in, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second school of thought, the second option on the table is this. There are multiple gods. This was very popular in the third century, a man named Marcion. He came up with this idea that basically what we have in the Old Testament is an evil God, very vengeful. And what we have in the New Testament is a good God, very merciful. Two different gods. As a matter of fact, the God of the New Testament came to save us from the God of the Old Testament. And Marcion literally did take scissors, a knife or something, and just cut away large segments of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. I don't think anybody would do that in our day. I don't think any professing Christian would do that. But there are plenty of professing Christians who have adopted precisely that view. They have this idea, and it's actually anti-Trinitarian. They have this idea that in the Old Testament, God is angry. Right? God is a judge. And God is out to get people. But in the New Testament, we have all mercy. And we see, yes, the meek and lowly Jesus. And although they would never profess it as such, their approach to Scripture and their entire approach to the Christian life, they actually put these two in opposition. And what they are left with, whether they openly acknowledge it or not, recognize it or not, is they actually believe in multiple, multiple gods. A God of the Old Testament, and I wish the preacher would just stay out of the Old Testament, especially those texts which speak of judgment and God is angry and the, God's righteous indignation. And I wish you'd just give us the New, you know, the New Testament. Actually, New Testament, stay out of Romans as well and other parts that speak of God's judgment. And just give me the Gospels. Actually, when it comes to the Gospels, stay away from some of the things Jesus said about hell, but just give me that, that good God. 
Just give me that merciful God who is all forgiveness, who winks at sin, who is some great grandfatherly ideal who just pats me on the head and sends me on my way. And what they are left with is multiple gods. Polytheism, in fact. The third option on the table is simply this. And it's the biblical one. Summed up in one phrase. How do we reconcile? How do we make sense of 1 Samuel 15? God is holier than we think he is. That's how. God is holier than we think he is. We could actually add to that. And we are far more sinful than we think we are. God is a consuming fire. And God is angry. It is not a passion. It is not a fit of rage. It is a holy affection flowing from his goodness. This good God expresses his righteous indignation toward sinners. Those who are in opposition to him. Those who are in rebellion against him. A.W. Tozer wrote the following. The tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly drug to deaden the consciences of millions. I'll repeat that one. The tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly, deadly drug to deaden the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all forms of sin while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unheeded. Unheeded. Now why should we care about that? Just as we should care about God's immutability. We can't, we can't know for certain God loves us apart from his immutability. Why should we be concerned about God's severity? Why should we be concerned in understanding it, defending it, and proclaiming it? Why should we care? It reminds us, this text in particular, as we see the destruction of the Amalekites and as we see Samuel hacking to pieces Agag, look at the language in verse 33. It's very informative. He hacks Agag to pieces before the Lord. It's an act of worship. As God's wrath is poured out, these incidents, however horrific and however much we might recoil from them, they remind us that God does not forgive everyone. He doesn't. God doesn't forgive everyone. God forgives those who repent and place their faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but He does not forgive everyone. And we are by nature, from the moment of conception, Paul tells us this in Ephesians 2, we are by nature children of wrath. Do you believe in a God who is so holy, so righteous, so sovereign, that at a specific moment in time, he can say, annihilate the Amalekites. Do you believe in a God who is so holy, so righteous, so sovereign, that at a specific moment in time, he can declare, depart from me, for I never knew you. Do you believe in a God who is so holy, so righteous, so sovereign that he can declare at a given specific moment in time, awake, O sword, and strike my shepherd? That's Calvary's cross. Do you believe in this God? 
If you don't, my friend, and I'm speaking very plainly, bluntly, you believe in a figment created by your own imagination. This is the God of Scripture. And this is the God whom we are called to fear. This is a God with whom there is no contradiction between his love and his justice. He pours out his justice and his righteous indignation against sinners, all who reject his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those who are in Christ, he superabounds with love and mercy and forgiveness on the basis and the basis alone of what his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, did when that sword was awakened. And that sword did strike him. And he did bear the weight, the full weight of God's wrath upon Calvary's cross. And so there we have two controversies. The immutability of God, number one, why should we care? Because his love is, in, is tied, related to, builds upon his immutability. And God's severity, why should we care? Because this shows us that God does not forgive everyone. He forgives those and those alone who are in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come now to what is blatantly obvious. The main purpose, the main intent of the text, verses 22 and 23. That's what we want to hone in on. Let me give you a brief summary of this back and forth between Samuel and Saul as it unfolds in this chapter. Go all the way back to verse 1, chapter 15. God commands Saul to do what? To destroy the Amalekites. Why? The Amalekites are the descendants of Esau. When the Israelites came out of the land of Canaan, this is 350 years earlier, the Amalekites attacked them along the way. And the Amalekites have been a thorn in their flesh ever since. The Amalekites have rebelled against God ever since. And so the day of judgment has arrived. And so he commands Saul. Saul's going to be the instrument. Israel is simply going to be the means, the mode by which God is going to judge now the Amalekites. Verses 4 through 9. Saul over here, what does he do? He disobeys. Yes, they go, they attack the Amalekites, but he spares whom? The king, Agag, of the Amalekites, and he spares all the best of the flocks and the cattle and everything else. We come to verses 10 through 14, back over here, what does God do? He challenges Saul. He sends Samuel. What is that I hear? The bleating and all the noise of those animals. What have you done? How does Saul respond? Verses uh, 15, I guess, really just verse 15, he says, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So basically here Saul is claiming innocence. He's not about to admit that he's done anything wrong. Now back over here, what does God do? Verses 16 through 19, he rebukes Saul through Samuel. Verse 16, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he reveals his sin. He reveals his flagrant disobedience. Saul's response, verses 20 and 21. Again, he claims innocence. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction, but the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Back again over here, the pendulum swings. God again speaks through Samuel. Now he corrects him in verses 20 through, 22 through 23, showing Saul what it is to obey him above all else. And then back over here, verses 24 and 25, Saul speaks. He confesses, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people. 
and obeyed their voice. And then verses 26 through 29, back over here, God rejects Sam, uh, Saul for, as being king, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And then back over to Saul, verses 30 and 31. Again, he acknowledges his sin. I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. And then back over here, finally, God departs. Verses 32 through 35. And his departure is signified in what? Samuel goes home. And Samuel does not see Saul again, or rather Samuel does not bring the word of the Lord to Saul again till the day he dies. Back and forth, back and forth. God speaking, Saul responding. God speaking, Saul responding. God gives a commandment, Saul disobeys. God brings his sin to attention, Saul pleads ignorance. God shows him exactly what his sin is, Saul pleads innocence and casts blame. God won't let it go through Samuel and pinpoints his sin. Finally, he admits it, but it's a half measure, it's a half confession, and finally, God departs from Saul. Finally and fully. Now, we're going to wrestle with some of those things. Honing in on verses 22 and 23, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight, remember the sermon title, Divine Delight, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, that's witchcraft, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. I want you to notice, I want us to notice, observe three things in those two verses. The first is this. God describes disobedience as what? Verse 23. Rebellion and presumption. He describes disobedience as rebellion and presumption. Look briefly at verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Look at verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. That's the essence of disobedience. Disobedience is rebellion. And it is presumption. It is us, sinners, Setting our will against God's. And it is rejecting the revealed will of God in order to satisfy our own will. Paul Tripp in one of his books gives the following example. He writes, It seemed like a huge waste of time at his age, but I went ahead and warned my little boy about the electrical sockets in every room. I told him, Don't touch them. And don't ever stick anything in them. It could kill you. He looked at me with a blank stare while one finger fidgeted with his t-shirt and another finger traveled halfway up his nose. A little more information than I needed, but there it is anyway. I asked him if he understood. He nodded his little head unconvincingly and off he stumbled to his next toddler adventure. A couple of afternoons later, I was reading in the living room when out of the corner of my eye, I saw our baby peeking at me. He glanced at me, then at the wall, then back at me, repeating the cycle several times. When he thought I was sufficiently distracted, he made a beeline for the wall socket. But just before he gave it that first exhilarating touch, he did something that left me amazed. He stopped, looked back to see if I was watching, and then he reached for the socket. 
That final glance demonstrated that he knew he was acting against my will, that he was trying to hide his rebellion, and that he was inexplicably drawn to what had been clearly forbidden. That is the essence of disobedience. Disobedience, we dare not minimize nor trivialize it. Uh, we dare not explain it away as a, as a poor choice, as a, as a regretful decision. No, we, we, we must call disobedience precisely what it is. It is open, bold-faced rebellion. And it is open, bold-faced presumption whereby we choose and exert our will over the revealed will of the living God. The second thing we note in these verses is the following. God compares obedience to divination and idolatry. Divination and idolatry, right there in verse 23. What is divination? Again, it is witchcraft. Why is disobedience like witchcraft? Why is it as bad as witchcraft? Well, what is witchcraft? What is sorcery? What is divination? It is trying to determine God's will while ignoring God. That's all it is. It's trying to determine God's will, what's going to happen, while ignoring God. That is precisely what disobedience is. It is us exerting our own will while ignoring God. It's extremely interesting that this should be mentioned here at this juncture because when we fast forward to the end of Saul's life, one of the last sins he will commit is what? He will consult a witch. He will be guilty of witchcraft, divination, sorcery. Why? Because he has rejected God. He has no interest in God. And so, yes, it might be reflected in that extreme whereby he would, he, would, he would seek to determine the future while ignoring God altogether. But it is there in seminal form, germinal form, in his very act of disobedience. This man is ignoring God. But not only is it like divination, it is as idolatry. Why is it like idolatry? Let me give you three reasons. They emerge from the text. The first is this. Saul, when he disobeys, he actually desires something more than God. Look at verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce? Look at the language. Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? You see, when Saul disobeys at that moment, he wants something. He longs for something. He desires something more than he desires God. In this instance, it is the spoil. It is the best of the cattle, the best of the sheep. It is wealth. I think that is what lies behind his sparing of Agag. Why does he spare that man's life? Why does he care? Just another mouth to feed. Because not all the Amalekites are dead. We learn this later in 2 Samuel. I think Saul is hoping what? For a ransom. He's hoping to ransom Agag back to the Amalekites. At this moment, Saul wants something more than he wants God. 
At this moment, he's looking to satisfy something. At this moment, he's looking to satisfy something he desires, something he craves, something he longs for, something he thinks he must have in order to make him happy. And that is the root of idolatry. He does a second thing here. He fears something. Not only does he want something more than God, he fears something more than God. Look at verse 14. We're introduced, Saul introduces us to the, to the people. Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep. Now look at what we read in verse 21. Again, the emphasis on the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. What's going on here? It comes out in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I'm a people pleaser. And at that particular moment, at that very moment, I was more concerned with what the people thought of me than what God thought of me. At that precise moment, I was driven by my fear of the people how they perceive me, how they esteem me, what they think of me, what they say about me. I was more afraid of the people than I was afraid of God. But there's a third thing here underlying his act of idolatry. Saul loves something more than God. Go all the way back in verse 12. We almost miss it with a casual reading. But it's there and it's informative. Verse 12, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself. Really? And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. What's he doing building monuments for himself? But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 30. Then he said, as Samuel continues to rebuke his sin, then he said, Saul, this is his response, I have sinned, yet honor me now. It's not pray, intercede on my behalf. It's not I'm begging forgiveness. I'm looking for restoration with God. No, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. I don't want to lose face. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. You see, Saul loves something more than he loves God. He loves himself. Here is a man absolutely consumed with himself. As we saw last week in the context of chapter 14, a man who in the final analysis is egotistical. Louis XIV, one of the Louis, there were so many of them, kings of France, he died early 1700s, full of himself. Most of them were. Before his death, he made arrangements for his funeral. He knew knew death was knocking at the door. And so he made arrangements and he uh, let them be known that uh, at his funeral, he wanted it held in the biggest, largest, grandest cathedral. That he wanted to be uh, laid in a golden casket coffin, pure gold. That he wanted to be referred to as the Sun King. And he wanted the cathedral to be in darkness. 
except for one solitary candle over his coffin illuminating his face. The day came for his funeral. The bishop, I don't remember his name, walked into the cathedral, never addressed the audience. Hush fell over the congregants, the people, hundreds if not thousands of them. And he made a beeline for the coffin. He snuffed out the candle. And then he declared, only God is great. That's what Saul needed to learn. Only God is great. Here is a man who has an extremely overinflated opinion of himself, a completely skewed self-perspective, a man who is driven by self-centeredness, driven by his ego, whereby he is erecting monuments in his honor. And when he is rebuked by the prophet of the Lord, rebuked by the living God, his only concern is what? Come with me. Let's offer these sacrifices so I can bow down to your God so that I save face with the people. That's his only concern. That is what is driving him. That is what is, that is, what is compelling him. And we see that although twice Saul confesses his sin, he acknowledges that he has done wrong, Saul never repents. Do you remember last week how I defined repentance? Regret in the human context is being sorry mentally. Remorse is being sorry emotionally and mentally. Repentance is being sorry mentally, emotionally, volitionally. Saul, plenty of regret. Saul, plenty of remorse. I have sinned. There is no repentance. There is no turning from his sin. There is no letting go of his sin. There is no acknowledging his poverty of spirit and coming before the living God in the, in the, in the cry of David against you and you alone have I sinned. Why doesn't Saul cry that? Why isn't there that kind of acknowledgement on his part? Because here is a man who will persist in his sin, persist in his presumption, persist in his rebellion, persist in his disobedience. Why? Because at the root, he is idolatrous. He fears something more than he fears God. He wants and craves something more than he desires the living God. And he loves something himself more than he loves God. You see, disobedience is far more than doing the wrong thing. Disobedience is loving the wrong thing. You got nothing else. Write that one down. Please remember it. Think over it. Disobedience is far more than doing the wrong thing. It is loving the wrong thing. That is why it is so serious in the sight of God. It is equivalent to idolatry. Laura and I were in Singapore earlier, a couple months ago. We were in the heart of the city and uh, walking along the street and there was a Hindu temple and we decided it would be a good idea to go in so we kicked off our shoes and in we went to this Hindu temple and uh, hideous, I don't know any other word for it, absolutely hideous. You got idols, images of uh, men with elephants' heads, women with fangs and idols, images all over the place. The entire roof is made out of these images and idols and you enter into it and there are these priests walking around with idols here, there, and everywhere. And they're feeding these idols and giving them something to drink. And they're uh, clothing them. And uh, they're, they're serving them night and day is basically what they're doing. And, and we hear that and we look at that and we think, what a, well, first of all, what a silly thing. Second of all, how horrific, how horrendous. It's nothing in comparison to our idolatry. 
Nothing in comparison to our self-love which compels us and drives us. Nothing in comparison to what we see the heart of man is exemplified in Saul in this text. Someone who loved something more than he loved God. And because of his love of self, he was compelled headlong to disobey. Flagrantly disobey. Oh, the sin of presumption. The sin of rebellion. Some years ago, I saw this video clip. I can't remember where, but it was nobody I knew. It was a birthday party. And a little girl celebrating her third or fourth birthday. And the camera was honed in on her chubby little happy face. And then it would scan all the faces of all the other kids who had been invited to the birthday party. And then it focused in on this other child, maybe a sibling, maybe a cousin, maybe just a friend. Somebody walked in, I don't know, sitting right next to her. And the scowl on this little girl's face. And the scowl just grew deeper and harsher moment by moment when the cake was brought out, lavished, set in front of this other little girl, and then the presents were brought out and all of this attention lavished on this little girl. And the scowl on that other little girl's face grew deeper and deeper moment by moment. And finally, maybe her mother, maybe, I don't know, an aunt, somebody, walked over to her and you could hear it in the video clip. This isn't your party. It isn't about you. Oh, how many of us need to hear that? This isn't our party. This isn't about us. Saul thinks it's all about him. Saul is a man consumed with self. And because he is consumed with self, he loves himself more than he loves God. That is the root of his idolatry. And that is why the Lord identifies his disobedience as idolatry. Because it springs from the same fountain. Saul fears something more than he fears God. He desires something more than he desires God. And he loves something more than he loves God. There's a third truth here. God declares his delight in obedience. Right there at the outset of verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? divine delight. For several decades now, in our circles, we've been making much of desiring God and delighting in God. We can even turn that into an idol. You look at how much has been said about us delighting in God and how little is actually said about divine delight. What does God delight in? What does God desire? Well, here is the blatantly obvious. Divine delight is what? Willful obedience. If, if disobedience is the expression of a heart which desires, fears, and loves something more than God, then obedience is the expression of a heart which desires, fears, and loves God above all else. That means obedience. Are you ready for this? That means obedience is the supreme act of worship. That's the blatantly obvious. We don't think like that. Obedience is the supreme act of worship. It is the expression of a heart overwhelmed with God's glory. And that and that alone delights God above all else. When I speak of obedience, I am not referring to compliance. We confuse the two. We have that 20-year-old young man, young woman, raised in a Christian home, attended church their entire life, volunteered and served the kids, 
mission teams, everything. And uh, the day arrives, that young man goes off to work, goes off to school, leaves home, and he completely derails. You know what I mean, right? Far too often we think to ourselves, oh, he's struggling with his faith. No, his faith was only his parents' faith. And while in the home there was compliance, there was conformity to his parents' faith. But once out from under that, those bonds, once out from under that context, there is flagrant disobedience demonstrating what? There was only compliance, not obedience, because obedience is worship. True obedience flows from what? Our understanding of the glory of God and our fear of him above all else, our desire for him above all else, and our love for him above all else. That isn't mere compliance. That is true obedience, the very heart of worship. Saul teaches us that. And Saul, as we look at his life as a whole and everything we've covered in these seven or eight chapters, we discover that Saul is really designed, he is there in Scripture to drive us to Jesus, isn't he? Here we have the king of Israel. And here we have a reflection of our own selves. Here we have a man whose mind is set on the flesh and we see this man failing miserably and rejecting, rejecting God. And we hear God say that after Saul, I will raise up a man after my own heart. It is a reference to the Lord Jesus. And so we look at Saul and Saul drives us to the true king. He drives us to Jesus. And we look to Jesus for justification, the solution for our disobedience, that he bore the penalty for our sin upon Calvary's cross. When we believe in him, we become one with him, and God clothes us with his son's perfect obedience. He clothes us with the obedience of one, a man who desired to do his father's will, a man after his father's own heart. And we look to Jesus for sanctification, the motivation for our obedience. Obedience, not because we're trying to earn something. Obedience, not because we're performance-based and think this gains God's favor or somehow impresses God. No, obedience, which is an act of worship. Obedience flowing from Calvary's cross and our standing in the Lord Jesus Christ, our standing in grace and a heart which is melted by the love of God a heart which is melted by the significance of Calvary's cross, a heart which now desires God above all else, a heart which now fears God above all else, and a heart which loves God above all else. Our Father, we pause in your presence and we seek now your blessing upon your word. We thank you for its breadth and its depth and praise you for how it speaks directly to the human condition. We praise you for how it reveals you, your works, your will. And we pray now that by the Spirit you would grant uh, that illumination, spiritual eyes whereby we might see. We pray that you might bring us into greater conformity with your word. And we pray that in all things your Son, the Lord Jesus, might have the preeminence. In his name we do ask it. Amen.